Good morning, everybody. All right. I want to say hello to those of you in our campuses in Waterbury, New Milford, and in Derby. And also for you who are watching online, wherever you might be, greetings to you. My name is Brian. Uh, For anybody who's new today, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the lead pastors. And it's just a privilege, again, to share from God's Word. We are in a year where we're focusing on this theme of Jesus. Just so you know, when this year comes to an end, we're going to still focus on Jesus here at this church, okay? Good, it's a good thing. So uh, that's what we're all about. In fact, our, our vision statement is to ignite a passion for Jesus. That's what we're all about. When people ask me, what's, what's Walnut Hill Community Church all about? I always say, it's all about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who saved us. Jesus is the one who redeems us. Jesus is the one who's restoring us. Uh, Jesus is coming again, and it's Jesus who we're gonna be with for in eternity. So it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and that's, that's who we are all about. And so that's what we're focusing on this year as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're starting off with a series we're calling Jesus Is. We're really focusing on the character of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And today I've entitled my sermon, Jesus Is Undefeated. Praise God. Give me a witness, somebody in here. Jesus is undefeated. I love that. I love that. And I want to take you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, and we're looking at the temptation of Jesus. This is right after Jesus is baptized, and he's led into the wilderness where he's tempted and tested. Now, there's something that we need to know about this part of the story, is that this is actually one part of the story. It's actually a part of a series of a trilogy of testing and tempting, And so we need to know the other two stories for this story, the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, to really have its full meaning. You know, it might be really hard to watch the last movie in the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings without first watching the first two, right? You would never jump to the return of the king without first watching The Fellowship of the Ring, right? And if you're a real guru in all of this, you know, you'd probably read The Hobbit first. And I know there's probably at least one person out there like the Brian, but there's one other book out there that you have to read to get the full context. You have to read The Silmarillion. I spent all last night learning how to say that for that one person that's out there. But you, there's context, right? You've got to read all the books. You've got to watch all the movies. You've got to watch them in sequence for you to really understand the full meaning of it all. The same is true when you come to Matthew chapter 4. The story is also told in Luke chapter 4. And, and you have to know the, the stories of temptation and testing that come before it to truly gain everything you can uh, from this part of the trilogy. So let me tell you the stories of the other two, and then what I want to do is just share three lessons that we can learn from the temptation of Jesus. There are many lessons, but I want to share three of them with you. Are you on board? Are you ready? Here we go. I believe the Lord has a word for us. I believe the Lord has a strong word for us. I believe the Lord today wants to maybe convict us and call us back to himself, okay? So I want us to lean in. I want our hearts to be open as we hear from the word of God and we receive this teaching. 
Again, I wanna encourage you to bring your Bibles if you have them in any form, whether that's on your phone, a tablet, whatever you gotta do, a written form, you know, old school, whatever, however you wanna do it, let's get the word of God in front of us, okay? So we're gonna be in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, I'm gonna get there. But it actually starts in Genesis. This first part of the trilogy, this temptation and testing trilogy, starts in the book of Genesis, where God creates the heavens and the earth, and everything's really good, right? Even after he says it, after each day he says, and it is good. Things were in harmony with God at this point. He creates human beings, Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden. And it was, it was good. He, he, he loved them and they loved him. There was this harmony between them. There was this special relationship with them. And God, he provided for their every need. He even told them that they could eat from from any tree in the garden, but one. See, the Lord, he gave them authority over the creation, but he did put up some parameters in order to protect, protect the thing that he created. And so he said, listen, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Take your pick except from this one. If you pick from the fruit of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even if you touch it, you will die. It's into this context where things are good and the relationship with Adam and Eve between God is is really good. It's pure. There's harmony in there. There's this personal relationship. It's into this context that Satan comes and begins to speak. And he speaks to Eve and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Did you catch that? And then Eve rightly responds and says, no, that's not what God said. No, God actually said that we can eat from any of the trees in the garden except for that one. So you're trying to accuse God that he said we can't eat from any of the trees. You're trying to accuse God that he's not providing for our needs. But actually, he's providing for our needs. We can eat from any tree in the garden except that one. If we eat from that one or even touch the fruit of that one, then we will die. Satan comes back and says, well, Eve, you know what? That's, that's interesting. You, you won't die if you eat from that. God's withholding something from you. Actually, if you eat from that tree, you will become like God. Now, let's just pause there for a moment because what we know from the Genesis account is that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And so the evil one's trying to say, no, you're not like God right now. But actually, they aren't God, but they were created in the image of God. And so they were very much like God. And the evil one's trying to say, no, 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 you're not like God, but you can become like God if you eat from that tree that he told you not to eat from. Eve finds this enticing, desires this wisdom, and so she and her husband, Adam, eat from that tree. In that moment, everything is, is broken. Sin enters the world. Now, God could have responded in a lot of different ways. God could have thrown everything out. <laughs> I remember when Beck and I were, were first married, in our first year of marriage, uh, we, we, we were cooking and we made a dish, beef stroganoff. I remember this day. And um, we put way too much sour cream in it was, it was, I can still taste it, like 19 years later, I can still taste it, was, it was so, it, right babe, it was so bad, right, it was so bad, I mean, we're good cooks now, but it was so bad, and so you know what, we couldn't even redeem it, it was so bad, so what did we do, we threw it away, and we started over, 
praise God, he didn't treat us that way. No, no, the Lord said, no, you know, you know what? I, I want to rescue my people. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go on mission to rescue and restore my people. So what does God do? This is what he does. He, he, he decides that he's gonna take one man. He's gonna bless that man. He's gonna covenant with that man. And then he's gonna bless his, his family and his children and their children. And he was gonna create this great community of, of people that would follow him. He would be faithful to them and, and they would be faithful to him. And then because of their faithfulness to him, many nations would see this relationship that they had with God and, and all the people of the world would come to know God. And so what does God do? He picks a man and his name is Abraham. And he blesses him. He covenants with him. When, when God chose Abraham, by the way, Abraham was probably worshiping many other gods. <laughs> Which right away, right away in the book of Genesis, we're already reading about the grace of God. That God, he, he seeks out the lost. I love that. Abraham, here he is, and he, and he chooses Abraham. He blesses him. Abraham is faithful to God. And, and so God blesses his family, and it becomes a nation called Israel. And Israel and, and God, they were doing quite well for a while as they had this special, separate relationship with God. They were set apart in order to reach more people for God, by the way. Things went wrong, though, when Israel was taken captive in Egypt. They became slaves. And as that happened, they began to lose their perspective and their understanding of who they were. They began to lose sight of who God created them to be, their special relationship. And this leads to the second testing and temptation. And this is the temptation and testing of the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so God delivers his people out of captivity. And he does it through a man named Moses. And Moses goes and he tells the Pharaoh and all these plagues come and finally he brings the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and then they come into the wilderness and they are in the wilderness for 40 years. Years wandering as they go through this testing period. Now, there are three things that we need to know about this testing and temptation period. Three ways, really, that the people of Israel separate themselves from God. The first is by their flesh. You see, they, they begin to complain to God and, and, and they don't trust God to be their provider. And so God says, listen, I'm going to send you enough food every day, but only gather what you need. Don't gather anymore. And the people don't trust God. And so when that manna comes, when that bread from heaven comes, they go and they gather it as much as they possibly can, put it in their bags, in their pockets, and in their hands. They bring it into their homes and they, they store it up enough for weeks to come because they're not trusting that God's going to send it the next day. Of course, we know the story, it, it spoils, but, but this is the first thing we need to know is that the people continually lacked trust for God. They didn't trust that God would provide what they needed. The second thing we need to know is that the people not only didn't trust God for what they needed in their flesh, but they insisted on testing God. They complained to God, God, why did you take us out of Egypt just so we could be led here to die? 
Send us back to Egypt. It was better for us there. What the people are doing is they're testing God. They're trying to manipulate God into doing what they think is best. So all of a sudden, this is, this is the sin of pride. The first was the sin of flesh. I can't trust you for providing for me. Now this is the sin of pride. We think we know what's best, and we don't think your way is the right way. The third thing that happens that we need to remember in this part of the trilogy is that the people begin to create idols and they worship the idols. This is the sin of the eyes, where they're, they're no longer looking to God as their one true God. Now they're fabricating and creating other idols and other gods, and they're bowing down and worshiping them. And you know what? God could have reacted in a lot of different ways. <laughs> God could have thrown it out again. But you know what? God's like, no, I, I still want this relationship with my people. I'm committed to my mission. I'm going to rescue them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down as one of them and show them the way. And so the prophets, great prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, they begin to prophesy about this Messiah that would come and deliver them, this Messiah that would come and live a, a perfect life. And so God sends his son, Jesus. This brings us into the New Testament now. And Jesus walks this earth. This rescue mission is now upon his back. And so God sends Jesus. Jesus lets go of his divine power as part of the Trinity. He becomes fully human. He grows up. This means he learns to walk. <laughs> he learns to speak. And then Jesus is baptized. And right before he takes on his part of the rescue mission, he's led into the wilderness for 40 days. That number is significant. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. So now Jesus is going back into the wilderness, but for 40 days to do what Israel could not do on their own. This is why oftentimes when you read different theologians, you'll, you'll read about, we call Jesus true Israel. True Israel. Because he takes on their mantle and he succeeds. He accomplishes what Israel could not. This leads us to our passage today in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, after his baptism, after a great victory, after the Lord speaks over him, he's now led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's very hungry. He's human. So imagine fasting for 40 days, how you would be weak and hungry. And it's right in this moment that Satan decides to tempt him. He comes right when he knows Jesus is at his weakest. He thinks, wow, I, I, can, I can move with boldness because I can take on Jesus because he's hungry. And the evil one tempts Jesus in three ways. The three temptations of Jesus. The first sounds like this. The evil one comes to Jesus and says, listen, if you are the son of God, then take these stones and make them into bread. Listen, I know you're hungry. Meet your physical needs. 
God's certainly not coming through for you right now. So come on, go. I know you're hungry. I know this is what you want. Take these stones and make them into bread. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus tells him, no. The scriptures say, in some of your translations it says, it is written, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now let's pause here. Jesus is quoting scripture. That's why he says, it is written, or the scriptures say. And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy a lot, by the way. When it says, it is written, or the scriptures say, oftentimes he's quoting out of Deuteronomy. He's drawing it back to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying here, very intentionally, hey, listen, I remember, and we should remember, that the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, they didn't trust God to provide for them. I'm not going to do the same. No, I'm going to overcome that temptation. I'm going to trust in God. And in fact, you know what? Provision doesn't come through bread alone, but actually I'm fulfilled the most through the power of the word of God in my life. And so Jesus, he's overturning this first temptation of the flesh. It goes on, and the evil one comes back to Jesus, says, fine, listen. He takes him to to the temple and puts him on the highest point of the temple. And and the Satan says this, listen, if you are the son of God, jump off. Now catch this. He says, for the scriptures say, all right, Jesus, if you're going to quote scripture, then I'll quote some scripture to you as well. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Satan is quoting Psalm 91 here. It is a passage. He is quoting scripture. But Jesus comes back and says, no, listen, no, no, you've you've got it all wrong. The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. What's happening here? I love this. Jesus, no, Satan is, is saying, listen, let me quote some scripture to you. And then Jesus is saying, listen, I know you can quote scripture, but you don't understand it. And by the way, you're challenging the wrong person. You're challenging the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, in Psalm 91, it, it does say that, that God will protect his people. He'll send angels so that they will be protected but, but scripture does not teach us that we should throw ourselves into harm's way to get God to protect us. Scripture does not teach us to test God. That's not our role. Oftentimes God will test us, but we don't test God. And so Jesus is saying, listen, Satan, your, herm- your hermeneutics are really bad. You don't know how to interpret the Bible. You're taking a verse out of context. And friends, when you take a text out of context, you make it a pretext, which all of a sudden you've, you've, you've taken the meaning completely out of it. And we need to be actually, let me pause here, we need to be very careful with that. You know, we can do that with scriptures. We can just pluck a verse and make it mean something it never meant if we take it out of context. Let me give you an example. You'll like this one. I can tell you where you can go to sin. It's in the Bible. The Bible tells us the location we can go to sin. Amos 4.4 says, go to Bethel and sin. (laughs) 
That's the verse. So all of you in our Bethel campus, that's why this campus is so large maybe. Bunch of sinners. Bunch of sinners. <laughs> I think Derby, New Milford, Waterbury like that. <laughs> yeah. Go to Bethel and sin. You take that out of context, it's lost its meaning. Of course God's not calling us to go to Bethel and sin. There's, there's context there. And you know, Christians have done this through the ages. It's the way that, that, that Christians even believe that slavery was okay. They took verses out of context. We have to be careful not to do that. And that's what the evil one is doing here. The evil one's taking something out of context, saying, oh, listen, just throw yourself off this, this high place. God will, will, will protect you, and then everyone will know. Put God to the test. Jesus says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. We're not to put the Lord our God to the test. That's not the way it works. The third temptation. Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain. He shows him through a vision all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, listen, these can be all yours. You can have all these kingdoms, but you have to bow down and worship me. And so first Satan tempts him by the flesh, then he tempts him by pride, and now he's tempting his sight. Just take your eyes off the Lord. Take your eyes off the one true God and, and worship me, and these kingdoms will be yours. And we have to pause here, and because a lot of times I think when we read this passage, we think to ourselves, well, he's Jesus. These weren't that hard of temptations. But he's fully human, and he's come so that he could establish a kingdom. And now the evil one's offering him all the kingdoms of the world. This was tempting, but Jesus overcomes this temptation. And he says back to the evil one, get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Let me just share three things that we can learn from this. There are many things, but three things that I felt the Lord leading me to today to share with you. The first is this. As I, I look at the temptation of Jesus, uh, one thing I learned and I think is important for us to remember is that Jesus has been in the wilderness. Jesus has been in the wilderness. In fact, Jesus understands temptation, as we go into the wilderness, as we travel through the wilderness, we can remember and trust that Jesus, our Jesus, understands. In fact, I love it in Hebrews 4.15, it says this, that, that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. I thought about that. I was like, is that true? Was Jesus really tempted in every way just like we are? Has Jesus had a peanut butter McFlurry? <laughs> Did Jesus have Amazon Prime <laughs> where you could just buy anything on a whim? No, but what, what, what this means in Scripture is that actually the evil, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment, but the evil one always aims at the same things. And in that way, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And so as we go through the wildernesses of life where we feel temptation, we feel testing, 
We can know that we serve a, a God and we walk with Jesus who knows these things, who understands them and actually wants to walk with you through them. Sometimes I think in our life we say, you know, I'm going through this temptation. Let me just, let me just get out of it and then I'll return to Jesus. He doesn't want any part of this. I don't want him to see me like this. No, Jesus, he understands and he's the one who can help you through that temptation, through that wilderness period. Second thing that I want to focus on that we learn from this is that the evil one is very predictable. He's very predictable. You know, Satan always aims at the same things. Look at this. This is what Satan aims at. He aims at our flesh. He aims at our pride. And he aims at our eyes. He aims at our flesh. The evil one tempts us away from God through our our flesh. Turn these stones into bread. Meet your own needs. Do what will make you feel good. Watch this. Look at this. Buy this. Drink this. Do what makes you feel good. God's not going to provide for you anyway. And the evil one tempts us on our flesh. But he tempts our pride as well. The evil one tempts us away from God by getting us to take things into our own hands. Jump from this high place. (laughs) Take control of the situation. God's not coming through for you right now, so, so make God act. You can do it. Be the king of your life. Be the queen of your life. Be the one who has control. And he always goes for our pride and and gets us to think, oh, you know what? I can do this on my own. You know what? I'm actually really good at this on my own. Oh, you know what? You know what? I think I know what's best. And he always aims at the eyes. The evil one tempts us away from God by getting us to look away from God and look at other things. He tries to get us to reprioritize our life putting other things above, of, above God. God might be in the picture, but you've placed other things ahead of him where you're bowing down to, to other things. Now let's ask the question, if that's what Satan's always aiming at, why is he aiming at those things? Because I actually think there's, there's a deeper meaning to all of this. Why is Satan aiming at the flesh, at our pride, at our eyes? Here's why. He's trying to get us to give up on three things. He's trying to get us to give up on the promises of God. God won't provide for you. Take matters into your own hands. Turn these stones into bread. God can't sustain you. What he said isn't true. The evil one's always trying to get us to give up on the promises of God. But secondly, he's trying to get us to give up on the ways of God. God's not gonna come through for you. Stop waiting on him. Don't trust his plan. Make him move. Jump from this high place and make him save you. You can't trust the ways of God. You gotta take things into your own hands. Don't forgive them. That's the ways of God. They deserve to not be forgiven. Don't serve them. No, why would you do that? Don't love them. Don't speak well of them. No, no, no. There's a different way. You know a better way. And the third thing, third reason why the evil one aims at the flesh, the pride, and the eyes is because he's trying to get us to give up on our identity as the children of God. You can be powerful. You can have everything you want. 
Just worship me. He's trying to get us to to shed our true identity and to embrace a false identity. See, our identity is that we are children of God and that comes as we worship him, as we put our attention on him, as we serve him, as we obey him. The evil one's very predictable. We can be certain that when he attacks us, when he tempts us, he's gonna do it through our flesh, through our pride, or through our eyes. But the third thing I wanna share with you is this, is that Jesus is undefeated. He's undefeated. You know, I picture Jesus walking into the wilderness for a rematch. <laughs> he wasn't a part of that first match. The Israelites were there and, and, and it didn't go well, but now Jesus is coming. He's like, listen, I'm going in for a rematch. And this time, we're gonna accomplish everything we came to accomplish because I'm stronger. You know, there's only one who is strong enough to resist and defeat Satan. It's not me, it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. That's why we praise God that we have the spirit of Christ Jesus in us. Without the spirit of Christ Jesus, we are hopeless. (laughs) We are vulnerable. I found this story. A little girl was asked if Satan ever tempted her to do wrong. She said, oh yes, she replied. But when he knocks at the door of my heart, I just pray. Lord Jesus, please go to the door for me. What happens then? She was asked. Oh, everything turns out all right. When Satan sees Jesus, he runs away every time. (laughs) I love that story. You know, what made Jesus so strong in the wilderness? A few things. First, he knew who he was. He was God, come as one of us. He wasn't gonna give up on his identity. He was filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. He was filled with the Spirit. He knew the Word of God. No, no, no. The Scriptures say, it is written. It's so important for us to be equipped with the Word of God as the evil one tries to tempt us. And finally, what made Jesus so strong? He knew his mission. He knew his mission. And he knew how his mission would be accomplished. And he stuck to it. Jesus is undefeated. Do you know the temptation of Jesus eventually moved to the trial of Jesus? The trial of Jesus eventually moved to the torture of Jesus. The torture of Jesus eventually moved to the tomb of Jesus. But the tomb of Jesus led to the triumph of Jesus. Right? It led to the triumph of Jesus. That Jesus is victorious. He's undefeated. That he bore our sins upon his back on the cross. He died for our sins so that our sins could be cast as far as the east are from the west. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, overcoming death, that we might have this type of transformation in our lives as well. That we might become a new person and that we might have eternity with him. I love Colossians 2. It says this, you were dead because of your sins. There's no mincing words there, right? You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. 
In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus is undefeated. I want to close by telling you this, friends. The message is very simple. The message is very simple. This is the message. We have all sinned. We've all departed from God. We've all been lured and tempted away. I wonder, have you been lured from Jesus, away from Jesus? I believe some of us have. In this season, we've been lured away from Jesus. I'm not saying that you've been lured away from church. I'm not saying that you've been lured away from your Bible reading. I'm not saying that you've been lured away from your small group even. But have we been lured away from Jesus? That's the question. And this is what happens with temptation. The evil one is trying to lure us away and and get us to depart from Jesus. But here's the good news, is we have a savior. His name is Jesus. He's undefeated. He's conquered the evil one and he has a place for your sin on the cross. But here's the next part of the simple message. We have to decide. We have to decide who we're gonna trust who we are going to surrender to, who we are going to worship. We have to decide, will we trust that God will provide for us? We have to decide to follow the ways of God. We have to decide to worship the Lord. And so I wondered in this moment, how about you? Have you made that decision? Do you need to make a recommitment? Have you been lured away? Is there a confession you need to make today? Lord, I'm sorry that I've departed from you. I've believed the temptations. I've fallen into these temptations. But today, I want to give my life back to you. So I'm going to leave it right there. Because I want our campus pastors and our uh, online campus pastors as well just to, to ask that question of you. Maybe there are some of you who need to come back to Jesus right now in this moment knowing that he is undefeated. And so I pray that this message has been helpful for us. I pray it's been convicting. I pray that it's been a message that's called us back to worshiping Jesus with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our our worship teams back, and I do want to provide an opportunity for us to respond to this message. So just as you're, as you're seated, listen in an attitude of prayer. Let's, let's pray, and I, I want to ask you a series of questions. I want to ask you just to reflect on, are you right now being tempted in your flesh? Is the evil one trying to pull you away from God by, by tempting your flesh? Causing you to look at things you shouldn't look at. Causing you to think about things you shouldn't think about. Causing you to talk about people in the way you shouldn't talk about them. Causing you to envy somebody else because of what they have. And this has occupied you. And you've fallen further out of your relationship with Jesus. I want to ask you, has the evil one been tempting you through your pride? Maybe right now you've found yourself going your own way. You've stopped listening 
to Jesus and what he's calling you to. I want to ask you, has the evil one tempted you through your sight? Are you looking to Jesus? Or have you prioritized something higher above him? You know, if that's the case for any of us, I just want to pray a prayer that you could just follow me in. You know, Lord, I confess that I've departed from you. I've fallen into temptation. And I ask that you'd forgive me. Right now, I recommit my life to you, Jesus. You know, I want to ask, too, maybe for somebody out there or some people out there, you've, you've never given your life to Jesus our undefeated Jesus. You've never claimed that victory over your sin. You've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to encourage you right now, right now, to turn to Jesus. How does that happen? Just in your own heart. You say to the Lord, Lord, I want, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to follow Jesus with, with all of my life. And friends, as you make that commitment and that covenant, God's already made that covenant with you. Now, now you're, you're partnering with that covenant. Now you are brought back in as a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. What you have to look forward to is a, is a life walking with Jesus now and, and into eternity. And I just want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer today, that at the end you'd come up and, and just share that with one of our folks who will be up here in a moment. But Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We just declare right now that, Jesus, you are above everything. You're over everything, Jesus, in our lives. And those places that, that we've put above you, we, we confess those things. We, we throw them away. And Lord, we just re recommit our lives to you. We thank you that you are undefeated, that you are victorious. And that you've never given up on your rescue mission. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for all that you've done. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.